Okay, um, well, we'll move on to our next lecture. Uh, welcome to the Science of Safe Foods. Um, this lecture will cover water activity controlled foods. It's a little bit shorter uh, lecture, and then we'll move on to low acid and acidified foods. Um, so this is our basic outline for our talk. We'll talk a little bit about food preservation, go over some definitions, some regulations and exemptions, um, a little bit about on jams and jellies, since that's probably the most common uh, water activity control product that's sold at the <coughs> farmer's markets, and then we'll have a few processing considerations as well. So to start with a little bit on the history of uh, low, low water activity foods. So baking has been around since um, 4000 BC. Unleavened breads were first produced by the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Romans, and they further refined that process. Smoking has also been part of food production. Uh, Native Americans in the northern parts of the United States, they used smoke. Um, they used dry circulating air from a fire to dry meats, fish, herbs, and vegetables. Also, we've just had drying itself, so maybe drying items out in the sun. So the Greeks and Romans, they dried peas and grapes. In the Near East, they preserved fruit by wrapping it in dried palm leaves and burying it in hot sand to dry. And then sugar. Sugar has also been used. In the 19th century US, women preserved uh, fruit in sugar. So again, a long history of understanding that water is an important part of food safety. You know, taking it out can help uh, extend that shelf life. A few more um, processes that have been developed over the years. Curing was first developed by the Chinese, uh, and they used those on pork products. Brining, brining meat and, meat and fish, this has also been used. Again, we know that that salt's gonna be binding up that water, so it's unavailable for bacteria. Freeze drying, um, believe it or not, freeze drying has been around for a while too. In the 15th century, the Incas of Machu Picchu they would leave their product out in the cold mountain temperatures, and so that water would slowly evaporate. Um, so essentially, you've got a freeze-dried product in a natural environment. So water activity, um, we went over this a little bit in the earlier lecture. So it's actually uh, based on a formula. The top number, this P, is the vapor pressure of water above a food. The P sub-zero is the vapor pressure of pure water at the same temperature. So the water activity of pure water is one. So essentially what the water activity is gonna do is that's gonna be a measure of the available water in the food. So if we look at that on a curve, our water activity of pure water is one when we get down to the lower sections or the lower values of water activity, such as below 0.2, we have a very strong, strongly bound monolayer of water. As we move our way up, that water becomes freer and freer and more available for microorganisms until finally we get to a point where we have free water and that's where we see the microorganisms start to grow. So, in this slide, we show schematically how salt and sugar might affect water. So in this first diagram, we see that the water is tightly, or the, the uh, sugar and water are tightly bound as that uh, sugar and water components become less and less, then we have more unbound water that's available for microorganisms to use. So 
we hear this term water activity a lot. And you get your sample, you send it off to a lab so you can have that result back. Um, but how is that measured? It's measured by a device that's called a water activity meter. And this is one of the more recent ones um, produced by Decagon. Um, any ideas on how much that one, that instrument costs? 100 G? 100 G? Not quite that bad. <laughs> <laughs> any other thoughts? 25. 25? Boy, you guys are really really up there. A little bit higher than that. So this runs about $10,000. So that's why people usually send it out. If they're not doing regular water activity measures, they send it out to a lab for, for testing. So this, this table gives uh, an approximate water activity value of some common foods. Um, so we can see a meat product could be up around 9.6. As we work our way down to dry powdered milk, we could be at 0.7. Our fudge sauce, which is kind of in the middle of this table, is at 0.83. And remember, we see that those regulations are, if you want to be exempt from like acidified foods regulations, the water activity of that product would be below 0.85. So a lot of your products like syrups or honey, fudge sauce, those are going to be exempt from the regulations because of their low water activity. Again, another table. I just want to point out on this particular table, um, jams and jellies typically run anywhere from about 0.8 to 0.85, somewhere in that range. So on this slide, I'm showing a little bit on the relationship of water activity and moisture, just to give you an idea that moisture is different than water activity. Okay, so water activity, that's the amount of water that's available for a microorganism to use moisture level or moisture content, that's the entire water that's in that product. Okay. So if we pick out one of the products on both of these tables, this is the food and the water activity. This has the food and the percent water. So if we look at jams, jellies, and marmalades, water activity is 0.75 to 0.8. Jams and preserves, the percent water could be 30%. So do those numbers relate? They don't. There's really no relationship between those two. So if somebody's talking about moisture level, they're not <coughs> talking about water activity. Two, two separate animals, essentially. So navigating regulations, um, the FDA has specific rules on water activity and pH um, regarding a food product. So in this first one, if your product is below 0.85, um, like your, your baked goods, jams, jellies, like we talked about, syrups, fudge sauce, honeys, those types of things. Um, those are going to be exempt from certain regulations. However, you still have to use good manufacturing practices. All of your utensils, everything you use have to be cleaned, sanitizing, good employee hygiene, those kinds of things. If your water activity is above 0.85, but your pH is below 4.6, you still have to have good manufacturing practices, but you may be also following those acidified food regulations. If your water activity is above 0.85, your pH is above 4.6, now you're getting into the area of low acid canned foods. Okay, so, so that'd be like your, your Campbell's soup or your canned vegetables, those kinds of products. 
So an acidified food, um, we'll see this definition in the next talk as well. Um, this is right out of the regulations. An acidified food is a low acid food to which acid or acid foods are added to produce a product which has a finished equilibrium pH of 4.6 or less and a water activity of greater than 0.85. Okay, so, so this is our key for our low moisture uh, products. Exempt products, jams, jellies, syrups, as I mentioned before. So if you're looking at the home-based processor who might be selling at the farmer's markets, uh, you could be doing whole fruits and vegetables, mixed greens. Um, these are what I maybe call, you know, maybe semi-processed or, or um, uh, processed, processed for shelf stability based on the way you make the product. Okay? These are all okay to be selling at, those, at the farmer's markets. And again, this is based on their intrinsic factors. Um, of pH and the low water activity that they have. So a little bit on fruit jellies. Okay. So why are these particular products so stable? Okay. It's because of their solids content, which could be around 65%, which is required due to the sugar, fruit, and pectin, and because of the acid content, primarily citric acid that's either being added or coming in from the fruit. So they have a very low pH, around 3.1, 3.2. Four major ingredients. We've got sugar, acid, pectin, and water that are all contributing to the um, composition of that, of that particular product. I found this online. I thought this was really cool. I think it's, if you're interested in maybe learning more about the science, um, you can go and download this this PDF file. It's from compoundchem.com, and it's the chemistry of jam making. So I went ahead and copied it and put it into this presentation because it was really nice how they put all of this chemistry together. Um, we make, I don't make jams and jellies. Um, I know some of you folks do and some of your family. Um, I had a grandmother that made lots of jams and jellies that was really good. Um, but this was really nicely put on how everything kind of comes together for, for making this type of a product. So if we look at this chart, we have sugar and we have the fruit acids. So these contribute to the firmness and the rigidity. So it's going to help form that gel structure. Okay? So it's going to draw, the sugar itself is going to draw the water away, it's going to bind the water, and as long as you have your final sugar content between 65 and 69 percent, then you're going to have a, a good gel structure. For the fruit acids, you want your pH somewhere between 2.8 and 3.3. And again, that acid is going to be critical to help form that gel structure. Regarding the pectin, um, pectin is also an interesting molecule in that the chain is going to bind to itself and it's going to form a gel network and trap the liquid. So it's going to trap water so it's going to be unavailable to the bacteria. So with all of these different chemicals that are found in jams and jellies, we have an extremely stable product. Um, one comment on standards of identity. In 1940, the FDA created standards of identity for jams and jellies and these are all listed here. And if you're making jams or jellies, it's highly recommended you try to make it according to a standard identity because that's 
based on how it's made, it's inherently safe. You can't really see the numbers in this chart too well, but I want to point out that this is available through the University of Nebraska Extension website. This is a NEB guide, and it was um, written by Dr. Derward Smith, who is a retired faculty member from our department. And the title is Fruit Jellies, uh, Food for Entrepreneur Series. And in this, it has this table along with instructions on how to make standard of identity jellies. So if you're, if you're doing that type of thing, you might want to pick this up because it'll be a really nice uh, reference for you. And here I just have underlined peach. So you just pick out which type of fruit you're using and it will give you all of the parameters you need to make the standard of identity. The other thing that the NEB guide does is it gives you some processing considerations as well, such as uh, how to hot pack, um, what temperatures you need to be at, and checking the pH to make sure you're at sufficient pH, um, not only for safety, but to make that gel structure. Um, it also talks a little bit about the processing part and the use of a refractometer to make sure you're at the correct uh, solids and the correct bricks. And this is in your, your notebook, so you can actually go directly to IANR pubs and download that document. So to summarize, um, fruit pre uh, food, preser food preservation has been around for thousands of years. And the primary way that we've preserved it is to remove water, as we've seen in a lot of different categories. Um, jams and jellies, as long as you're making them according to a standard of identity, they're going to be inherently safe. So I'd highly recommend if you're in doing those types of processes to, to check, make sure that you're making according to a standard of identity.